Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. Please stand for the reading of God's word. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? What kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you? A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks again. We'll see you. Good morning. You know, we live in a uh, remarkably technological age, and things advance so quickly that we forget how cool some of the stuff we have is, and we take them for granted. For example, I read an article this week about the autocomplete feature uh, when you're Googling something or the Apple's predictive text, you know, where you're typing something and it anticipates. It's a, it's a whole series of complex algorithms about your previous search engines and local where you live exactly and certain trends, et cetera. And don't do this during the service, please. But uh, when if you type in the ultimate, you'll all get a little bit different answers. But here's what I got when I typed in the ultimate. Uh, The ultimate fighter, I'm not sure exactly why that came up. Uh, The ultimate gift, that kind of made sense. So these are some of the options that it was anticipating because it's Christmas time. The ultimate driving machine. So if you know me a little bit, that might make some sense, right? Uh, This one, I had no idea. The ultimate source of magnetism. I have no idea why that came up for me. But then the last one was the ultimate cheese board. And if you know how much I love cheese, I thought that was very appropriate. Now, What's more important, though, is just that I was thinking about this idea of the ultimate. The the ultimate is something that we as humans are always drawn to. And I think it's because we are creatures of an infinite, perfect, limitless, never-ending God. 
And so we have in us this sense that there is something more than our limited and finite and imperfect and ever-changing experience. So we long for the ultimate. It's just like built into our DNA. As one biblical writer puts it, we have eternity in our hearts. So we seek the ultimate. We seek the ultimate vacation, the ultimate house, the ultimate sport experience, the ultimate relationship, the ultimate cheese board for some of us. And that could be good. The good of that drive in us, because of the drive for the ultimate is that we are often driven for excellence and beauty because of the way God has made us. But that drive for the ultimate can also greatly distort us and make us imbalanced, never satisfied, in bondage to always the next experience being the ultimate one and the next great thing. Well, in our text for Galatians today, we're really getting quite near to the end of this little letter that we've been preaching through. And with great passion, Paul is going to wrap up his main argument as he kind of transitions us into this last section of the letter that we're going to see today. And in it, I think to make sense of it, I want you to keep in mind this idea of the ultimate in both its good and its bad senses. The human drive for wanting to figure out what the ultimate thing is, I think will help make sense of this text. So let me, I want to pause once more and just pray that God would attend to us as we open Holy Scripture. Our kind Father, uh, once again, uh, I pray, as I've been praying all morning and you've answered prayers, that you would come and do what we can't do for ourselves, which is um, quicken our faith and our hope, our joy, uh, convict us, guide us, lead us, transform us. You do those things by the power of your Spirit, so we ask you to come now in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, you wanna have your bulletin out so we can look at the text. We've got quite a few verses to look at or we'll throw them on the screen as well. Um, if you've been around our church for the last couple of months, again, you know that we have been preaching through this little letter of Galatians and it has a pretty consistent message. The apostle Paul is very passionate about a problem. So we call the letter to the Galatians because there's all these churches that were in this area in Asia Minor called Galatia. And he's just been throwing every argument he's got at this problem. And today is kind of the grand finale of that, these verses 1 to 12. What's the problem? Well, the problem that Paul is concerned about, that should be our concern too, is about really what Christianity is at its fundamental level. I mean, it's really that significant of an issue. And Paul's argument is that Jesus Christ came into the world and he fulfilled all the promises that God had made to a guy way back millennia ago, a guy called Abraham. And that promise was that all peoples throughout the world would be blessed through Abraham. And so Paul's argument is that the core of Christianity is that Jesus, the son of God, is the descendant of Abraham who's gonna fulfill that, complete all that. And he's made a covenant with people. And covenant is just a fancy biblical word for basically a relationship. And that there is now between God and humanity, a relationship you can have through Jesus Christ alone, where every gender, every race, every economic status, education, past successes or failures, everything has changed. And anyone can have a relationship with the God of Israel through this son, Jesus. Now, His argument is you can't go back to that earlier way of relating to God, the Mosaic Covenant, 
because that was really specific to the Jewish people and it's over. God used that to bring Jesus into the world and now that time has come. And so that is the only way to relate to God. That's the point of the whole book, really. As an illustration, we can think, you know, you and I, we don't drive all the way to Orlando to, get, to go to Disney World and then we arrive right on the, at the gates and then we turn back and drive 100 miles north and set up a shabby tent under the interstate sign that says Disney in 100 miles and say, isn't this great, kids, or something? Not at all. Paul's point is the Mosaic Covenant had a purpose. It ended. Now the new covenant that is available through Jesus is here. So you don't go backwards and try to add to Jesus this Mosaic Covenant. That's his argument. And so it's very, very important. And what I think he does in our first 12 verses here, he gives kind of his grand finale, kitchen sink, throw every final argument at this point. And so I want to read it for you again so you can feel the passion. Let me just read these verses for you again, the first 12. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free, Paul says. So stand firm then. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to, it, to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's then obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law, you've been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace for through the spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You're running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. All right. Now, there is a lot in there, and I'm not going to be able to say something about everything. That would be overwhelming. Let me just highlight a few things, okay? First, notice that Paul picks up on, if you were here last week, or you can go back and read it, the, the verses from last week about this image of two ways. You can either find freedom through Jesus Christ and his covenant, or you can find bondage or slavery by trying to relate to God through the law. And that, you see, it was what all this talk about circumcision is. And I was thinking, you know, if you were an alien who showed up here from another planet and sat here for a few uh, months here at our church, they'd say, man, these people are really into circumcision. Like every week we talk about circumcision. It's a very odd and almost awkward thing. And we're going to see in, you know, verse 12 kind of brings it to uh, its ultimate discussion about that. But this, this is the reason why circumcision is so much talked about is because it's really just a marker. It's a, it's a key or it's like a code word to refer to the whole Mosaic covenant. These two options that Paul is saying, you can either be with Jesus and his covenant or circumcision represents trying to relate to God through the Mosaic covenant. And his point is, if you try to go down that road, circumcision, the Mosaic covenant, then you're in big trouble. Because if you look back at verses two to four, he says, you don't have Christ then. The Mosaic law is an all or nothing deal. If you want to go down that road, you have to do all that it says. And the problem is it's over. It's a dead covenant. We're not relating to God that way anymore. But the Jesus covenant is also an all or nothing deal. If you want to try to relate to God, you can't mix these two covenants together. That's what he's saying is crazy. What happens when you try to mix these two things together is that you'll end up falling between the stools and the result will be destruction. I want to say something about chapter five, verse four, because this 
I think could easily be misunderstood. I don't think chapter five, verse four, when he says you've fallen from grace, I don't think he's talking about a, a, an issue that Christians debate sometimes. Can you lose your salvation? I don't think that's the point he's trying to get at at all here. He's talking, he's presenting to everyone a fork in the road. He's saying, you have two cho- You have a choice here between whether you wanna to try to relate to God through the Jesus covenant, which is grace, or whether you wanna to try to relate to God through the Mosaic covenant, which is not, that's bondage. So he's laying this out. And in verse seven, if you let your eyes rest down there in your bolts, and you'll see, he basically says the same thing again, this time with the, the imagery of a race. He's saying, you were running a race and now you're facing this fork in the road. Which way are you gonna go? And who has persuaded you to go the wrong way? I know some of you here are runners, some of you are hikers. Even if that's not true of you, I'm sure we can all picture this image of someone standing at a fork in the road. They come up to this point and you're facing a choice. One direction looks and feels good. Maybe you look at that fork of the road and you say, it's got poured concrete, it's got handrails, it's very familiar, I'm used to that. And then this other way is kind of going up, you can't really see where it's going, it's kind of wild and free up the mountainside. Well, Paul is standing at this fork in the road for every one of us. And he's saying, look, I've got the map. I've been to the top of the mountain. And I know that way that looks like it's safe and familiar of obeying all these rules. And especially for you Jewish people doing all that you've ever done. I know that looks like it'd be better, but I guarantee you that ends in destruction. But this way that looks kind of wild and free, right? Where you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to do all these things right? That's scary, but that alone is the path that will lead to the grandeur of God in Jesus Christ himself. Now, notice something else he says in verse 5 and 6. The question, you see, of this whole book is about this big biblical idea of righteousness. How do you, how do you know that you're doing what's right and in a right relationship with God? What, this is what Paul's sort of arguing with his in Galatians the whole time. Like, who's right? Do you have to obey the Mosaic Covenant or not? That's the question. And Paul is saying that that way, again, of the Mosaic Covenant, that's not going to result in righteousness. But what he offers as an alternative is, is amazing and beautiful. He's saying that the righteousness is something that it's Jesus himself who's going to appear and come to us, which means that in, when we're in relationship with him, we can live in great hope and eager expectation. And think about this with me, friends. The point is that if we're trying to relate to God through this law where we do a bunch of stuff, we can never know if we've done enough, right? Have we done enough right things? And have we done all the right things? And the result is a lot of anxiety. But he says, if you're gonna be in this Jesus covenant instead, He's completed all of that. And so we don't have to live in anxiety about whether we're in a right standing with God. He is our righteousness so we can hope and look with eager anticipation because we're not counting on ourselves. We're counting on him instead. This is the fork in the road that Paul is pointing out to us. And the one is freedom, the one is bondage. And if you let your eyes rest on verse six again, this is why he says then that circumcision this marker of the old covenant is it does not matter whether you're circumcised or not. Only being in the Jesus covenant will make us right. And this gives me the opportunity to, to kind of insert into your minds a really important idea that from Christian theology that we call a diaphora. 
A diaphora is this helpful concept of recognizes that there are things, a lot of things in life that are not essential to the Christian faith, but that may be permissible to do or not if you want, right? But they're not essential, but they're, they're open to one's own conscience. So you can think about all the things that this might be. So diet, vocation, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, politics, schooling. The New Testament brings up a really crazy one, food sacrifice to idols. It says that's even a diaphora. There are all these sort of things that are in, that are in Christian life and churches. You can imagine going to different churches and they have a lot of things that they say, this is really, really essential. Well, the reality is, and here's the shocking thing, Paul is saying, and this is amazing to his fellow Jews that he's saying this, even circumcision is actually a diaphora. That is, it's not of an essential matter. If you want to be circumcised, if you want to circumcise your children, that's fine, but it does not matter whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. That has nothing to do with what really matters, the ultimate or the essential, which is being part of this covenant through Jesus. And here's how it all comes together then, friends. I said I want to talk about the bad version of they drive for the ultimate and the good version. Here's the bad version. Legalism, which is a term you may or may not use very much, but legalism, we can define it a lot of different ways. Let me define it today this way. Legalism is when people make a diaphora issues become ultimate issues. A diaphora issues that aren't really essential to the faith for many people become what are the ultimate issues. And that's the bad drive for the ultimate. So you can begin to fill in the blanks of all the things that might be in that category. And one of the most shocking ones is that even circumcision isn't isn't, uh, truly of an ultimate matter. But this is what Paul is getting at. There are so many things in life that are truly a diaphora that are not essential to the Christian faith. You can practice them if you want. You can have convictions about them. You could even have friendly discussions about whether you think something's wise or not. But you have to have a clear distinction between what is a diaphora, what doesn't really matter, and what is only ultimate. And Paul's argument is there are very few things that are ultimate, but being united with Christ is absolutely essential. And the problem is, you see, with legalism, which I always describe as a a disease that many people catch in their 20s and 30s, and if it's not diagnosed early, it can result in a chronic condition that is really ugly, right? And so maybe you're in that category, you'll figure that out. But there's certain reasons for it. But the problem with legalism is that it's driven out of anxiety. It's not driven out of freedom. It's driven out of the anxiety to make sure you've done enough. And usually anxious people sooner or later, turn that on other people. And it's what I call WAL, weaponized anxious legalism. You sort of weaponize it against other people, and then you can create a whole community and whole churches where these things that are truly not essentials to the faith become essentials, and that's legalism. So it's a bad version of the ultimate drive. Now, there's one more ultimate that Paul does, and it is in verse 12. And Kevin and I have joked over the last few weeks about how I ended up with this verse, because this is the kind of most crazy verse, right, of the whole thing. But Paul, in his great passion, in all this, he says, okay, 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 you want to be circumcised. You think circumcision is important? You know what? Here's something. No, don't just cut off the foreskin. Go ahead and castrate yourselves. 
who says the Bible is boring or impersonal, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is intense, right? And this is, this, it's kind of, we euphemize it a little bit by saying, I hope they emasculate themselves or something. But what he's saying is, you want to cut off the foreskin? Go for it all the way. That's how passionate he is about this issue of making things that are not essential to the gospel, making them ultimate. Thankfully, our text doesn't stop there. Okay, go, go and be well-fed. Thank you for coming, right? It doesn't, it doesn't stop there. <laughs> Thankfully, there's something even more powerful and I think more, far more beautiful that happens in the next few verses. But before we get there, look back at verse six. Let me read this once again. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So when he's explaining that circumcision is a diaphora, it doesn't really matter whether you do it or not because it's not part of the Jesus reality. He goes on to say, though, there actually is something that is of ultimate importance. There's a good ultimate, and it's faith expressing itself through love. Now, he doesn't develop it there. He has to, he kind of gets all worked up and he does his, why don't they go ahead and, you know, castrate themselves rant. He gets that off his chest and then he comes back in verses 13 to 15 and let me read these for you. You, my brothers and sisters, you're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather, here's an ultimate, Serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If instead you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. This, these verses, so powerful, they go back to verse 1 where the, he says, you were called to freedom. And so he, he comes back, he talks about all these other things, and he says, now, but we've got we to qualify that in a crucial way. Yes, we're free from the Mosaic law. Yes, we're free from the need to be circumcised. We're free from all kinds of things that are not essential to the faith. But that doesn't mean that just you can do whatever you want. You just do you or something, even if it means being a jerk. No, Paul says, you're free from slavery to the law, but now you're actually bound to something good and beautiful and life-giving, that is to humbly serve others in love. And there's a bit of a play on words that we lose a lot of times here. He's saying there's two kinds of slavery. You have a choice. You can be slavery to the law or you can be slavery to love. That's what he means by humbly serving one another in love. And notice that this is very interesting. Paul calls serving one another in love not indulging in the flesh or not biting and devouring each other. I think if I would have started this by saying, if we did a little survey, what does the New Testament mean by indulging the flesh? Just think about that. I bet most of us would say something like sexual sins, right? We think of sexual sins, maybe gluttony, although in America, that's not really a sin, right? We have buffets after all. Um, so I buffet my body, as Paul says, right? So the we have... I got like four Bible jokes. I got to weave them in occasionally, right? That's, that's one of them. But when we think indulge the flesh, we think probably primarily sexually. But Paul is not defining this as a sexual sin, although that would also be true. He's saying indulging the flesh is about interpersonal conflict and the sins we do against each other, especially, I think, with our words. 
And I think the reason why we might be a little surprised by that is because in our subversion, our sub-tradition of Christianity, of all the you know, forms of Orthodox Christianity, our particular version, we tend to strongly think of godliness only in vertical terms. Have you ever considered this? Like if you were to, if somebody would say, what does it mean to be godly? Most of us would define that in terms of like personal purity and sort of my relationship with God in a vertical way. But I'd like to suggest to you, and that's true, that is part of godliness. I'd like to suggest to you that, be so bold to say that actually the New Testament's primary way of talking about what is godliness is actually horizontal. There's a vertical element, but it is largely horizontal and particularly the command to love, to love other people. Recall, for example, Jesus' last night in the Gospel of John when he is with his disciples and he models self-sacrificial love by washing their feet. And then if you look at chapters 13 to 16 of John, the constant refrain is, here's what I'm telling you. At the end of the day, everything else I'm saying, love one another. This is the reality that is the core of Christianity. Or Matthew 5, where he culminates in a central section of Matthew 5, where he says, how do you end up being like God? What's the ultimate sort of example? You love even your enemies and treat others with love, even who oppose you. There's lots of other texts we could look at, but let me, I want to put before you 1 John 4, such a powerful one. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not actually know God because God himself is love. So dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Friends, what what this is saying in other texts as well is that there's an organic relationship between our, we might say, vertical righteousness and our horizontal righteousness or vertical godliness and horizontal godliness. They're not, they're not just accidental or they both happen to be there. What First John is saying in other texts is that what love for God looks like, for the most part, practically, looks like really being people of love toward others. And in light of that, here again, the amazing thing he says back in Galatians 5, 14. This is the same thing he's saying. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So friends, do you want to know what the ultimate good is? So we we saw a bad ultimate, the drive to make things that are not ultimate into ultimate things, but the drive to say, what is the ultimate good? Like, what does God really care about at the end of the day? How could you really do God's will in the world? How could you really be one who is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How do you really do that? Paul's very clear, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the fulfillment of the entirety of God's will. Really, come on, isn't that a little reductionistic? Well, other things do matter, obedience and all kinds of other things. But if you want to really have the lodestar for how to fulfill God's will, what's the ultimate good? The answer is love. 
And notice the, what's really powerful about the irony of this is that, again, Paul, you know, he's just given us our, his verse 12 explosion, right? And now, and now he, he, I think he's just saying, look, okay, I've been arguing with you about fulfilling the law. I care about the law too, he's saying. But do you want to know what really is the fulfillment of the law? It's not circumcision. It's not Sabbath moon festivals. It's not all that. You want to know what really, if you really care about where the fulfillment of the law is, it's love. It's loving others as yourself. And you may say, well, where in the world did Paul get that? Well, he gets it right from Jesus himself, right? Do you remember at the end of Jesus' life when the, the Pharisees, the same kind of people Paul's fighting with, come to Jesus and say, okay, what's the ultimate? Like, what's the, what do you think is the ultimate commandment? Like, you know, most of the time they're trying to trick him. They say, what, what do you think the ultimate, ultimate commandment is? And he gives, I think you probably know the answer. If not, you will now. He says, First, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. He gives it, it's a two-for-one deal. He doesn't just give them the first. He said, the second one is right there with it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in Christian history and Christian theology, we call this the double love, the love for God and the love for others that are organically related. They're not just hierarchical. They're, they're related to each other. And I like to think of these as like the longitude and latitude of the Christian life, right? To find your place in the world, you need that crosshair. You need that, that double point of your longitude and your latitude. You need both a love for God and a love for others. And if you have only one and not the other, you will be lost, if you have only love for others, but you have no relationship with God, you're lost. And if you think you have a relationship with God, but you don't love others, the New Testament's really clear. You actually don't know God, it turns out. You need both of those things to find your place in the world. And so when Paul, sa Paul says the whole law is fulfilled in loving one another, he, he's not denying the, you know, love God or something. He's just not addressing that. He's, he's talking about the practical issue. He agrees that it's loving God first, but the practical issue of what that really looks like, looks like loving other people. So I'd like to say to us, friends, that if we as Christians have all the right doctrine, we have all the moral uprightness, we might have conservative values and practices. I think Paul, I think the Old New Testament is very clear that if we lack love for others, then we're actually in the same boat as those who are saying you need to be circumcised. We're making something else the ultimate when God himself says the ultimate is love for God and love for others. So ultimate bad, making things that are a diaphora, ultimate legalism, ultimate good, love, the true fulfillment of the law. It only remains for me then to just press us in a little bit to conclude today with what I'd call the ultimate life of love. So that is, what does it mean to really live out this fulfillment of the law in love? Well, let me first say something at the cultural level. Can I just invite you to resist and avoid the posture that I see in so many people where everything has to be a critique and a concern, right? This sort of weaponized, anxious legalism, I think. Almost always on a DFOR issues, right? There is in many Christians a posture of this constant 
critique and constant concern about things there were. I'm just concerned about this and I'm worried about this. I'm concerned about this, whether it's in the church or outside as well. I won't mention people or websites or groups or whatever. You can figure it out. But of course, there are situations and times for sure to offer critique and concern and disagreement from a Christian worldview. Absolutely right. But I guarantee you it's far less frequently than you think it is, right? Especially if that is your posture. Are you familiar with the relationship ratio of positive to negative interactions? This is, there have been long-term longitudinal studies of marriage, for example. It's true in education and in business. That for there to be life and flourishing and, and good relationships, there needs to be at least a five positive interactions to one negative interaction. Have you thought about that before? At least five to one. Like you can, you can predict a marriage, whether it will end in divorce or not, by looking and tabulating, you can do it for yourself or sometimes counselors do this, tabulating what the ratio of positive to negative interactions is. Parenting, same way. To apply that to culture, friends, could I, could I just invite you to say, if we're gonna be people that are marked by love, our interactions and our words that we speak better be at least five to one positive over negative, at least. How about 500 to one? right? Instead of everything being an opportunity for us to offer a criticism either of the church or of culture, Jesus says they will know, the world will know that you're Christians, not because you offered a a trenchant critique of culture and what's wrong with that movie or something. No, you will know because the mark is going to be that those people love. Yeah, maybe we disagree on this or that, and maybe they do offer a critique, but the thing that we should, that people should experience us individually and as a church is love. Wow, those people are loving. That's what people should experience both within and outside the church as well. So my challenge to you is to look for opportunities to exercise that ratio of love and let that be what people say about you. And let me, let me drive it down to a more personal level. Let's think for a minute about marriage. Many of you here are married, some not, I realize, but let me just speak about marriage and close relationships like that. Well, of course, that five to one or more relationship ratio matters a lot, as I've already said. It's so easy in marriage to take your spouse for granted and the little annoyances and maybe big disappointments that just kind of settle in over time and the relationship just becomes this kind of Uh, you know, cold war out of convenience or maybe just, you know, going through the motions. For me, my marriage, I'm a performer. So I show up in life saying, how can I kick this thing's butt, right? How How can I fix this and do this and this and this? And that works in a lot of areas of my life. For me in marriage, what that ends up looking like is that I just think of it as a duty. Okay, here's the things I need to do. Here's the things I need to do. Here's Here's what I need to do. But friends, have you considered how crazy it is that the Bible's religion, Christianity, doesn't just call us to a bunch of duties. It doesn't just say, well, if you do these things and don't do these things, you're good. Instead, Old Testament and New Testament, it's a call to be people of wholehearted love, love for God and love for others. You need both of those. That's amazing that that's the religion of the Bible. That's the call of the Bible. So as I think about marriage, as you think about your marriage, I'm aware that God is calling me to something more than just doing all the right things, being faithful, you know, 
serving with integrity, et cetera. But instead, he's calling me to step towards more than that. That's a, those are good things. But to humbly serve my wife in love, really love. What about you? Some of you have been married a long time. Some of you are newly married. doesn't really matter that much. It's not too late to repent. Maybe this afternoon, you need to think about your marriage and think about ways in which you've kind of just given up, which is easy to do, right? I understand. To just, you've kind of given up and you're just kind of going through the motions. I'm not saying that you're always going to have, those of you who've been married a while, you know you're not going to always have the romantic feeling part of it, but I mean the call of God to more than just duty, but the call to humbly serve one another in love. Think about your soul. Don't think about how your spouse isn't doing that. That would miss the point, right? That's not the point. Think about yourself and then maybe have a conversation. Maybe apologize. Maybe there are some marriages here today that are on the brink. This might be the end. This week, you, you just said, you're, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. God brought you here and I'd invite you to step towards love and see what happens. I want to say something also to the teenagers here, maybe tweens through teenagers. There's quite a few of you here. What does humbly serving one another in love look like for you? Well, let me say that the perfect place to start is with your siblings who are so annoying, right? That's a direct quote from the Pennington household many times. So annoying, right? Let me say to you, the reason maybe those of you have siblings, maybe especially younger siblings, but it goes both ways. The reason they are so annoying to you is, first of all, they're made from the exact same DNA probably as you, right? And they're probably the stupid version of yourself from two or three years ago that you're embarrassed by, right? Can I get a witness, right? Like you see your former self in them and you're, you're not even aware that you're embarrassed by that former self. And so they are so annoying, right? Teenagers, kids, young people, let me invite you to maybe try to break that cycle and step towards love because here's the motivation. The way God has made the world, what you reap, you will also, or what you sow, you will also reap. So if you, if you sow, if you cast seeds of shaming and being mean and uh, just being annoyed and being harsh and unkind, don't think that just goes out into the ether and doesn't matter. Not only does it affect that person, the way God has made the universe, that is going to come back around to you. Maybe immediately, <laughs> maybe you'll see it. Oh yeah, well you stink. You know, I mean, maybe you'll see that. But at a more, at a more, at a deeper level, that's how God has made the world. We do reap what we sow in relationships. So how about? break that cycle by the power of the Spirit and say, in that moment where you're just so annoyed and we got Christmas vacation coming up, so you're going to be with each other more probably. How about say, I want to instead sow love. And maybe, maybe I can, maybe this afternoon, maybe I can serve my younger sibling. Just see what happens. Will you try that? Just see what happens when we serve one another in love. Because you see, if, 
if it's true that God says that's the fulfillment of the law in that one commandment, then I can guarantee you that life will come from that. Maybe not immediately, maybe not how you expect it, but that's okay. Step towards one another and serving one another in love. And then for all of us, we get to think about workplace, school, church. Here we are in Advent, we're heading towards Christmas. Maybe Thanksgiving, you were with family and it was great. And maybe you're gonna blow it at Christmas time. You're gonna be annoyed. Maybe you had a horrible Thanksgiving and you were gotten fights and whatever. We have another chance. By the power of the spirit, we have a chance to step toward fulfilling the law of God by being people of love. And my challenge to you this week is just have your eyes open to look for little opportunities to step towards serving one another in love and thus fulfill the law of God. Some of you know, my, my father-in-law died on uh, Thursday morning. We got the call about 4 a.m. So my wife is en route to Iowa right now. I'll take the kids tomorrow and preach his funeral on Tuesday. Uh, he was, he battled cancer for seven years. And so the, that's sad, a lot of sad in that. One positive in that is that he had opportunity to make things right with his children and other people in his life. And, you know, with my wife, he had opportunities. He wasn't, you know, he was a good man overall. He was a believer, very imperfect father, as everyone is. And, you know, he was able to have conversations with my wife over the last couple months that were very meaningful. And I, I won't say what he said, that's her story, but I can tell you what he didn't say. I'll tell you for sure what he did not say. He did not say, looking at the end of his life, I wish I wouldn't have been so loving. No one on their deathbed, and that's every one of us, the, this is the ultimate, ultimate. All of us will have a bed where we are dead. Got that? Some of us will happen suddenly, some of this will happen after seven years and after hospice. We don't know. But no one in those last moments regrets being people of love. And that's because that is the ultimate that God has made us to be, to be people who love him and love others. You will never regret sowing towards loving others this week. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.